Hello everyone, this is Saqib. It's uh, time to do another episode of Tennis with an Accent. And today I'm joined by Nick Nemiroff uh, from uh, Brooklyn, New York, who is a certified USPTA tennis instructor, also contributes uh, in tennis writing to add, you know, to everyone's amusement for the game. Uh, he's a known voice on Twitter. Uh, this Sunday night. Thanks, Nick. I know you're, you have a busy schedule. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, anytime. So, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, we've been talking before the podcast how, you know, uh, we'll approach and, uh, this episode. And uh, uh, let's start with uh, your credentials. Uh, you, you're a tennis instructor. Uh, what kind of uh, players or what kind of programs are you contributing towards? Is it like beginners or... Just fill, fill, fill our audience, uh, what a tennis instructor does. Sure. I'm now the director of tennis operations at a club in Brooklyn, New York, called Court 16. The club is primarily focused on 10 and under players. So that's probably, you know, that's a vast majority of our clientele is players who are 10 and under. We also have some teenagers and adults, but the main focus is uh, 10 and under tennis. And, uh, you know, just uh, for, totally from a fan's point of view, because these are elemental roots. I mean, there's a lot of young kids, you know, 10 and under. How serious do you see uh, our interest from some of these parents? Uh, uh, is it just like something recreational or they're really uh, – I know it's too early, but uh, just explain to me when someone brings their kids uh, for this kind of a program, is there a vision for the long term or they take it day by day, month by month? How does that go for young kids? Yeah, it's definitely a mix. There's some parents who want their uh, who want their kids to uh, really, really improve uh, and really uh, start to take the, the sport seriously and play tournaments uh, and uh, really have a competitive uh, approach to it. Uh, and there's a lot of parents who just want their kids to to get exercise and have fun, and some parents who want it to be a family thing. So there, it's a wide mix, but there's definitely parents who. Uh, get their kid in the sport and really want to see them grow. And I think some of it, some of it is, you know, you have a kid that you put them in a program and then you start to see, okay, they're really picking up on this and then you start taking it more seriously. Um, so there's a lot of that as well, where it's not so much uh, determined from the beginning that they want their player, their, their kid to, to be a serious player, but they see the player start to grow and then they start to uh, invest more into it. Uh, sure. And, um, I'm not originally from the U.S., but I've spent like uh, a good amount of my life, actually more than half my life in uh, in U.S. But when I was in India, I always thought America was the powerhouse of world tennis because uh, when I came here, Agassi and Sampras were, you know, uh, in their primes and Chang, Courier, Martin, there's a, uh, you know, big supporting cast as well. So now, you know, now we, we are removed a generation from Andy Roddick's generation. And uh, uh, my question is kind of like a little more detailed into what happened in your view, to the American tennis, and since you're working at the grassroots levels, is tennis as big as it used to be? What what you've heard while growing up, and where's tennis at in terms of uh, in in your knowledge? Like, let's take New York City as an example. What's the overall tennis scene uh, for 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 New York City? Well, that's a great question. Yeah, New York City is a tough place to play tennis, as you can imagine, as most cities are. Um, getting court time is not like getting court time in the suburbs where you can just drive to your local high school and start playing and you don't have to sign up or pay a fee. For example, in New York City, you know, starting tomorrow or I guess May 1st, uh, a lot of different tennis uh, 
uh, ten parks that have tennis courts, like the one that I play at called Fort Green Park here in Brooklyn, uh, they require you to have a permit. So you can't play unless you buy a permit. The permit lasts you. Uh, it'll it'll be good throughout the whole summer and most of the fall, but it costs a hundred dollars. There's nothing like that where I'm from originally, which is uh, Pennsylvania, where I could, as I mentioned, could just drive to any high school, uh, any local high school, and just get on the court right away. Um, but you know, as far as the 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 development of the sport, ten and under tennis is huge. It has revolutionized the way tennis is taught. In the past, players uh, who were Younger started off using the same rackets as adults, the same size net, uh, the same type of balls, and now all of that's changed. The court is smaller, the balls are slower, uh, less compressed, the rackets are smaller, the scoring format is reduced, the tournaments that the players enter are reduced. So it has made tennis a lot more accessible um, in that respect as far as the uh, learning curve is concerned. And again, to the young audience that you teach, uh, I'm sure, uh, you know, times have changed because Serena, uh, Venus, and now, you know, Sloan and Madison Keys, there's a lot of good, you know, homegrown examples uh, for the for the young generation to look up. But I think this is something very new for the American kids for the last 10 years or so, with Andy Roddick gone and, you know, like the role models are Europeans or even South South Americans like Del Potro and then, of course, the Europeans being Federer and Nadal and, Djokovic. While you were growing up, uh, I'm sure, uh, I, I don't know, I think you're pretty, you're definitely younger than me for sure. Mm-hmm. But when you were growing up, how has that uh, scenario changed? When the growing up, uh, you know, role model was Sampras Agassi, and now America such a proud tennis history, is finally embracing, you know, the international scene, which is dominated by Nadal and Federer and Novak and Andy and Stan. Yeah, well, it's interesting how uh, American tennis has kind of... Uh, progressed over the last or you know how american tennis has um the path it has gone on has 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 occurred um you know right now the american women are are far more successful than the american men after sampras and agassi we had roddick he only won one slam and now you know while we have a lot of guys who are in the top 100 um, none of them have really made any significant breakthroughs at the grand slam level and i think a lot of that has to do with uh, the playing style. I think uh, if you look at Agassi and you look at Sampras, they were more willing to to involve all parts of the court, meaning uh, they were strong from the baseline, they had strong serves, but they were also willing to get to the net, obviously particularly Sampras. Another difference is the backhand, the backhand play. I find the backhand play of many of the Americans today is not as strong as the backhand play of the Americans, you know, in the 90s uh, when they were succeeding. So I find that to be a major difference. You see a lot of Americans, they have a big serve, a big forehand, and that's the uh, that's how points are constructed. I find there to be less thought involved as far as point construction is concerned. A lot of people also attribute that to the lack of clay court play that Americans uh, undergo when they're, you know, when they're growing up. I, I think most... American tennis players could tell you that they grow up playing mainly on hard courts. Yeah, uh, no, definitely. You make some very valid points. And I've, I've listened to this kind of conversation before in written format and in, even in spoken forums. And uh, I'm not going to go toe to toe on technique, but I'd like to add another layer of a question here, uh, which is uh, 
Uh, do you think the court speeds that have changed over the years allowed, you know, Americans and Australians in the previous generations to play like uh, one or two strike tennis with a good serve, a good forehand, or like guy like Rafter, you know, uh, attacking, you know, courts allowed him to come to the net and finish points. So then it was okay if you had like a limited backhand, say even Roddick grew up idolizing that generation. And then he had the same uh, one-two punch of big serve and a forehand. And now with, I think, the slowness that has creeped in into the court surfaces and the polyester strings. So the result is like a very complete player, but a very similar playing style of Nishikori, Djokovic. Everybody's like so competent from the back. There's not a weakness. So maybe that's where I think we missed the trick as Americans. You know, we were growing up watching those guys and it was a one-two punch. Everybody had like a big forehand and serve. So do you think uh, the string technology and the slowness of how court speeds, uh, you know, have been reduced to in the last decade or so adds up to the problem, which is like uh, the, our backhands are getting exposed, ours as in the American players? Well, it's an interesting point you bring up about the court surfaces. A slower court surface... Uh, tells a lot of players in their head that uh, it's harder to get to the net uh, because my opponent has more time to set up for a passing shot. Um, but what they what they should be considering is, one, a slower court surface also means it's tougher to finish the point from the baseline, so there's also more incentive uh, to get to the net. Additionally, uh, if you're slowing down your approach shots, if the court surface is slowing down your approach shots, that also, in theory, means that you'll have more time to get to the net. So I feel a lack of net play uh, is significantly hurting not, not just American tennis players, just a lot of tennis players. If you want to beat Djokovic and Nadal on a slow surface, you can't do it just from the baseline. It's just not practical. You have to mix in some net play. Unless you're Federer um, or Murray and you have a, an amazing day or you're you know, one of the, the big servers or big hitters and you just have one of those days – you know, for the most part, you you really need to get to the net, and I find um, that element of the game also uh, has been lost, and it would be great to see it come back. And the second part of my question was uh, on strings, and since you know you're an instructor, so I, I can imagine you've been playing for a long time. So, how does string technology evolutionize the game? I know even at my level, sometimes I'm hitting, a, I'm knifing a slice. I mean, I don't play with polys a lot. But when I used to, it was amazing feel. I mean, I could only dream of hitting that kind of a shot. So how does that string technology has helped? We all know what, what you know, what kind of tennis they have produced. But in, a, in your opinion, uh, how does that, how has that changed the game uh, in terms of fitness and in terms of, you know, the tennis we see on TV? And maybe and another point there is, is string technology also causing a lot of injuries? Because polyester is not an easy string on the body. Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not the most educated on strings, but what I do know is that, and I think this is a pretty common thought, is that the string technology just has provided players with so much more spin. You know, I told someone the first time that I ever used Luxalon, I felt like it was a cheat code in a video game. How was it possible that I was producing this much spin? Of course, the racket mechanics uh, are ultimately what's, helping you create the spin, but you know, the, the string definitely provides an easier feel and easier access. Um, and as far as, you know, the polys are concerned, yeah, uh, it definitely, uh, can cause injury because if you're using a racket that is all entirely made up of, which I've done in the past, Luxalon, and it's just a poly, um, yeah, it can definitely hurt your arm. And I can immediately tell the difference when I'm playing and I have uh, a Luxalon poly in the mains 
versus the crosses. When it's in the crosses, uh, it's not providing me with as much pain or, and I don't feel like I have to put as much effort into the shot. Um, so I know I haven't read it, done any research on this, but I can imagine there's players, a lot of players out there have a similar type of experience using polys, um, and the, uh, subsequent, uh, leading of creation of injuries. Yeah. I read something, um, in the early part of the year, Richard Evans, who works for the tennis channel, uh, is a very decorated, you know, journalist who's seen it all. Uh, he spoke with, I think, Ivan Lendl, and Lendl, I think, said something in reference to Murray's injury, that uh, polyester string, I think, is a way it sends, like, sh- some sort of a shock wave to the to different joints in the body, and when you keep doing it day after day and the intensity these guys play at, it, it is something that triggers a lot of injuries. Uh, so, yeah, that's... Uh, and then you pretty much are echoing something like that at our level, even at a, at a club level. So let's do a quick segue now. Uh, since you're an instructor, and uh, is there a shot that you see that w- that you would like to see more on the pro tour? You think there's a shot that the pros are not using too much? Is it a volley? Is it a slice? Uh, or w- what is your pet peeve when you see something like that, and you think, "Wish, wow, this could be done a little more." Well, I got a few. That's a great question. I got a few. Um, well, obviously, I mentioned volleys. I don't believe there's enough net play, but the one shot that I was always instructed to hit. And Sampras used a ton, and it's not used that much anymore. Is on the second serve side spin. Um, second serve side spin serves. Um, most players are using kick. They're using a top spin serve. Um, a side spin serve is usually going to be faster, and it's usually going to be more difficult for the opponent to play. Um, Sampras used side spin serves a ton. I would love to see more players use it on their second serves just an aggressive side spin serve that it tails away from the opponent. Um, so that's definitely one shot that I think could have uh, more use. One shot that I think is is certainly uh, overused, and I, I tweet about this pretty often, is uh, cross-court approach shots. Mm-hmm. Players are often hitting cross-court approach shots and getting passed down the line. This is something that I instruct my players about all the time. When you hit in a cross-court approach shot, you leave the down-the-line open. So unless you hit an extremely potent cross-court approach shot, uh, you're leaving yourself very susceptible to your opponent's passing shots. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I would say the the number one most underutilized shot today is, is definitely volleys, just volleys. But also a side spin serve is something I would love to see more often, especially at Wimbledon. Use a side spin serve on grass and your opponent's going to have some trouble if you can hit it effectively. Is a side spin, if you're right, is a side spin second serve more effective than that? Deuce code or add code, it doesn't matter. It's, I mean, if you can hit it right, it's effective in both courts, but it's much easier to hit effectively if you're a righty on the on the uh, on the deuce side. Okay. The angle is easier. The angle is much easier to create. Yeah, let's go quickly back to the other shot that you mentioned that uh, people are approaching cross code, leaving down the line open. Do you think this is also a, uh, an extension of how a lot of the players today? They learn to volley, but they don't really learn to volley because they don't want to use it. They're afraid. So in their mind, they just feel it's uh, more automatic of a selection to approach uh, cross-court. you think that's the mindset uh, for making up for the lack of actual willingness to volley? So you mean they're going to go cross-court uh, and just try to end the point there? Yeah, if I correctly, you think that's a pet peeve or that's something that's underutilized, going cross-court? Yeah approaches it's i i think that cross-court approaches are overutilized and the reason 
I don't know why so many pros use it. I really, it, it's kind of, it's baffling to me. It's such an easy and logical thing to fix. Um, now there are, there are a few of my coaches, you know, would advocate a few of the coaches that I had in the past would advocate, um, going cross court. If you can do it well, if you can do it well, it's, it can be a really strong shot because your opponent, if they want to go down the line and hit that down the line pass has to change direction. And if you can give them a good approach shot, making them change direction is tough. But in most cases, unless you hit it really, really well, going cross court is definitely not the play. And I, I, I simply don't know why, uh, it's used as often as it is. Mm. Maybe it's a, still a good play on the low bouncing grass, say in, in Newport, but uh, I think on other courts, it's probably not a good play. <laughs> right, yeah. Those courts are uh, definitely very unique. Yeah. yeah, I was talking to Hassan Qureshi and some of the guys, Rajiv Ram, last year, and they said this is what Wimbledon used to be a long, long time ago, where, you know, the bat bounce was really not good all the time, and, you know, uh, and it was like low bounce and not what it's today. So, so, and on that point, I, I definitely have uh, mentioned before on Twitter that I would love to see Wimbledon played one year at Newport. Those are authentic grass courts. Yeah. You would get serve and volleyers going deep every year. The baseliners would have significant trouble, um, especially the players with longer strokes. Absolutely. And that's why a guy like Rajiv Ram, you know, like he's you know, pretty much uh, in the Sampras uh, mode of play, uh, he's won that thing twice. And he struggled at Wimbledon. That's why I asked him. He said, it's a day and night difference on those courts between Wimbledon and Newport. That's a, that's a, that's a great point. Um, yeah, I never actually thought about that with in relation to Ram. But you're right. He definitely is uh, model, at least definitely his serve uh, and his forehand. I guess you could say all parts of his game really, really similar to, to Sampras now that I think about it. Yeah, he, he modeled. I think he, Boris Becker was his hero, and then he modeled his game around Pete Sampras. Uh, uh, I don't know if you listen to any of my podcasts, but there's a good uh, episode that I have done with him and his wife uh, on life on tour and how he came up. So, uh, anyway, so let me put you on the you know on the spot and ask you a difficult question. Rafa Nadal is like you know a tank who's going through the field. He's just like so good. We all know that. And uh, and you're an instructor, so you see the game a uh, little bit more qualified than some of us do. And you you know your shots, you know your tennis. So if you were giving the coaching advice to any of the top men. What is the formula against mm-hmm. Nadal? What is the formula to even keep it close? And, and who are some of the candidates who can actually do this in this season? That's a great question. It's something that I've thought about in the past. And I believe a few years ago, I wrote an article about this. Um, but I tweeted last week that I believe that right now, in at, considering everyone's current form, the only players who can beat Nadal on, class, on, on um, clay at the French Open and best three out of five sets. Um, and th- it's still very, very, very unlikely that either of these two players could do it. But uh, Isner and, and Del Potro, just because of their sheer power, their ability to win, uh, to control points. Against Nadal and Clay, you have to con- take, take control of the points. If you're playing a defensive brand of tennis, unless your name is Djokovic, and Djokovic clearly isn't you know, up to par right now, you're not going to win. Um, so someone with Isner serve and ability to attack off the ground is someone that uh, could challenge Nadal. But even but with the way he's playing right now, he, he looks unbeatable. But some of the strategies I would I would give regular players, like someone like who played Nadal the other day, Klezan, um, you know, he, he hits the ball pretty hard. But uh, 
for him to do to try to beat Nadal with sheer power over best of five sets is not practical. So one the one advice I would give is attempt to get into net when possible. Try to give yourself another option to win the point. Um, I would say uh, serve and volley because especially when he's standing deep to return, get to the net, he might pass you a few times, but that shouldn't discourage you to keep putting that pressure on him. Um, another uh, tactic that I would I would uh, use against Nadal and Clay is to hit up the middle. Uh, reason why hitting up the middle is uh, a, a, can be a strong tactic is because we see Nadal creating these insane angles all the time. Hitting up the middle makes it tougher, especially when an opponent is pinned back to create angles. There's less angle to work with. Um, and then, of course, attacking his second serve. If Nadal has one weakness on clay, it's going to be a second serve. So when given the opportunity, uh, players have to go for a lot off his second serve. That's one area where you can find an advantage. And, of course, when they're serving, you've got to go big. You've got to get a Sampras mentality going for big first serves and big second serves. That's really the only really the only way I can see a player really challenging Nadal to do all these things over – Best of five sets um, is very tough. Indeed, that's why uh, it's only happened twice and it took like a redlining, Robin Soderling. And then, of course, uh, in 2015, Novak Djokovic was prime Djokovic who was playing the tennis of his life. Uh, so how about this? I mean, just adding to a question, if suppose uh, it's not going to happen, but if, if suppose there's an upset, uh, because when Nadal was playing his best tennis, for the most part, Federer was the second best player in play and then for the other five or six years, it was Djokovic. But right now, we don't have a candidate like that. So if supposedly someone pulls a Soderling and Nadal is, you know, out, who who wins this thing, like, say, in French Open or Madrid? Because Tim is not looking like the guy he was last year. Zverev looks a great player one week and is, you know, looks like a lot to be desired the next week. And then there are likes of, you know, Del Potro, Chung. So who, who's a candidate who can emerge if there's an actual upset at, at a big tournament? Who, who can really back back their game all the way to the time. The field seems pretty open if you take Nadal out. Definitely. I would go with, give you a couple names. I would first go with Team. Team last year appeared to be the second best clay court player. Um, if he's healthy going in, Del Potro, given his power and what he's done in the past at majors. Zverev is tough to, to go with right now, given that he has not, yet reached the quarterfinals of a Grand Slam, so he has not proven himself at that level yet. At some point, we all imagine he will. I mean, of course he will, given how talented he is as a player. Um, I mean, the French Open right now is a month away. Djokovic looked a lot better in, uh, I mean, at least in Monte Carlo than he did in Indian Wells in Miami. Who knows how how a month can change things? I mean, a month changed things for Nadal. You know, when he retired after he arrived in Acapulco when, when he withdrew from the tournament, um, I was thinking to myself, wow, this might be another year where Nadal is not going to be as strong uh, as he has in the past, been in the past uh, for the French Open. Um, obviously, last year he dominated, but um, I thought it was going to be a year where Federer might be able to sneak a, another French Open in, uh, but obviously that's not obviously that's not going to happen. Um Outside of that, maybe Nishikori. I mean, he certainly looked good in Monte Carlo. Health is always a big, health is always a big factor for him. And 
the last name I would give, and again, again, this is health dependent, is Wawrinka. Um, you know, he made the final last year, and he's an extremely talented clay core player. But um, it, as you mentioned at the at, at the start, is is very wide open. It's, it's super wide open, and uh, if Nadal somehow did lose, um, yeah, I mean, it would it would definitely be up for grabs. And I guess I should also mention Isner. Yeah. I mean. I think the way he played in Miami was a level of play and a, a brand of, of tennis that we hadn't seen from him before. Yeah, the Miami performance was pretty encouraging. But then again, uh, Isner, I still think, uh, I'm on that side of the jury who thinks Isner is a great best of three player. Uh, best of five, I think, is a different beast, even for Isner, just like it is for Zverev right now. But yeah, you, you, you cannot rule him out. And uh, to add to the list, I had like a, a usual, you know, small list going into the season of people. I think would have at least performed well. And now still the season is still only two weeks old, but I had uh, uh, Yun Chung, Luca Pui, and uh, and uh, Andre Rublev as uh, some of the guys who can play well or who would do well on clay. But, uh, and, and Diego Schwartzman. So, yeah, I know I was forgetting someone. So between the four of them, I think uh, mm-hmm. collectively Chung hasn't played and the other three have won, I think, maybe one match <laughs> in two tournaments. So let's see. I guess as good as anyone's at this point. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Nadal's off this week, uh, starting tomorrow. Uh, there are three tournaments in Israel, Istanbul, and Munich. I don't know if you had a chance to look at the draws. Are there some matches that excite you? Uh, if you ha- had a chance to study any of these draws? Yeah, I did get a chance to, to look through them. Uh, well, I mean, in, in Asterol, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, um, Anderson and Carino Boost are the top two seeds, and that's kind kind of becoming a little bit of a, of a rivalry now after they played um, in the uh, U.S. Open semifinals last year, and then uh, they played uh, a match that went seven six in the third. It was it was either in Indian Wells or Miami, but it was and Carino Busta won that one. Um, in that draw, I see a really interesting first round match: Sitsi Pass versus Andahar. Yeah, Andahar, the winner in Marrakesh, and then Sitsi Pass, of course. You know, got to the final in Barcelona, so that's a really strong first round match. Another one that would intrigue me from just a pure enjoyment perspective: Ramos, Vinolas, and Delbonis, two lefties who really hit a lot of spin and thrive on the clay. That's a really good one. Uh, Sandgren and Tyfo, two Americans battling it out. I believe they're the only two Americans in that draw, and they're playing each other in the very first round. Yep. Uh, Typho won in Delray Beach earlier this year, and Sandgren, of course, uh, reached the quarterfinals of the Australian Open, and he also reached the finals of Houston. So that should be a very um, entertaining first-round match. In uh, Going on to Munich, um, m- most interesting first-round match on paper would appear to be uh, Fonini versus Cecinato, who just won in Budapest today. Two Italians going at it in the first round. So that one would definitely be one that I would definitely try to to, to get da- to sit down and watch. Uh, Cole Schreiber and Karlovich, two veterans. It's amazing what Karlovich is still doing at his age. Um, just going around the world, acing everyone for all these years. Uh, sounds like a fun way to make a living. Um, and then in uh, Istanbul, you got the top seed is Chilich. Um, Bernard Tomic is back in action. So, uh, you know, we're always, uh, you know, we're always 
intrigued by what Tomich might do uh, on and off the court. Um, outside of that, in 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 uh, in Istanbul, nothing really uh, stands out to me. Doesn't appear to be a strong tournament. If you look at the rankings in this tournament, it's very uh, very interesting. Chilich is the top seed, and he's ranked number four. The number two seed is Jumer. Uh, he's ranked 32nd. The third seed is Seppi, and he's ranked 55th. So the top three seeds are not even close to each other in ranking. So you would have... Yeah, Istanbul has been hit by a few withdrawals, and uh, they're lucky to have Chilich, who I think uh, got married this weekend or Friday. So uh, yeah, he probably will start on Tuesday or Wednesday. So that's definitely, ranking-wise, the lightest absolutely. of draws. You're absolutely yeah. right. Uh, and going back to Tomic, I'm friends with... Uh, Bert Artunga, at least a Twitter friend, a very knowledgeable person. So he told me something about Tomic. Like, uh, Tomic is very close to the Turkish Federation and people who run this tournament. So that's why they got this uh, wild card. I, I believe his sister got the wild card in the women's draw, too. So, And uh, just to add back to what you said on uh, Israel, if I'm saying it right, I think your pronunciation sounded much better. Mine is uh, more. Uh, <laughs> This English pronunciation. Yeah, Sitsipas is someone, you know, who definitely proved a lot of us uh, not wrong, but he definitely can play on the surface. He went through a very good field. Uh, Schwartzman and uh, Ramos Vinales and Karina uh, Busta and team. Those are like top 10 clay court players on most people's list, and he didn't lose a set. Granted, team and Schwartzman were kind of flat and listless, but still a win is a win. So Sitsipas, all of a sudden, I think his world has changed. He's going to come into this tournament. now expected to do well. So I'm going to – I've been keenly following his career since he came on my podcast last year. Uh, it was only a three-month-old podcast. He gave us a chance. I had to talk to his manager. So I'm following his career for more reasons than one now. So uh, it, it'll be interesting for me to see – and, and I think for most people that Tsitsipas, for the first time at this level, had played five matches in six days and now will get a Tuesday or Wednesday start. So usually it's tough to back up a final or a win when you play the next week. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. His match against Anduhar is definitely one of the matches to look forward to. And there's another person in the draw, which uh, I'm keenly following this year, is uh, Nicolas Jari of Chile. He's going against uh, Leonardo Meyer of Argentina. I got a chance. That is a really good match. Yeah. I got a chance to see Jari play courtside in Miami, uh, where he was pretty much manhandled by the brilliance of Schwartzman. But Jari has a lot of firepower. He can pretty much hit a lot of shots. And he's one guy, uh, Nick, you would like. If you haven't seen him yet, he comes to the net a lot, clay or hardcore or whatever. He's one guy, I think, uh, another guy from South America who wants to win on surfaces other than clay. I believe he said somewhere that he wants to win Wimbledon. So he's one guy I think, you know, we all should keep, uh, you know, keep a check on because, uh, you know, he definitely can mix it up with the best of them. He has a lot of firepower. Well, that's that's great to hear. And, uh, and on Pass. You know, what's amazing to me, one, is how well he did in this tournament. Outstanding performance, beating all those top-level clay court players. But was also, what was also uh, very uh, interesting to me, um, I shouldn't say interesting, what is very amazing to me is that he made the final and uh, then only won three games against it all. He looked strong the whole week, uh, and he took out all these top-level clay court players and you, he, he didn't, you said he didn't drop a set, right? Yeah, he didn't lose a set all week. Right, he didn't, he didn't lose a set all week, and then he only wins three games in the final. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's unbelievable right now what Nadal is doing. The gap in Nadal and Russell Field is huge. And uh, the most, most staggering thing is, is it because this is pretty much a template you look at. Of course, Federer and Djokovic were still playing him close. And uh, Djokovic actually beat him quite a few times in play. But this is exactly what was happening like eight or nine years ago. Nadal was go through the field and actually the likes of Davidenko and Gulbis, you know, would take sets. Now there's no one in the last, you know, since he lost to Rome, uh, to team in Rome. He hasn't really come close to even losing a set. Klizan served for it the other day. But otherwise, it's been pretty much routine. And, and he's still... Uh, the scary part is he's still not even playing close to his best. So, yeah, it's going to take a special effort from someone or Nadal has to have like a really off day for someone to have a shot at him. Otherwise, this is not looking good if you are the rest of the field. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if you saw my tweet the other day, but I posed the question, if Nadal was provided with a... If, if Nadal's opponents were provided with a 4-0 advantage, a 4-0 advantage in every single set... Yeah. Of the tournament, would he still win? Yeah, that's that's not good because there's a guy in our college. He used to spot everyone eleven points in a game of ping pong, and still no one could win more than five, and he would run the table all day. So yeah, you playing to twenty one. Yeah, playing to twenty one. Back in the day, it was playing one. He would right. give everyone eleven zero start, and no one would beat him. <laughs> they, exactly. Yeah, I feel it would be pretty much the same with Nadal. So, yeah, I think we covered a lot here. Unless uh, if you're comfortable, you and me can take turns and just, you know, give some predictions who's going to win the next, you know, the tournaments if you want to go that route. And then we can wrap this conference up. Absolutely. Let's look at Easter uh, uh, first. And uh, who are your two finalists and who wins this? I know it's tough, but just take a shot. <laughs> uh, well, I'm definitely going to go with Karina Busta. I think he's the best clay court player uh, in this tournament. And on the top half of the draw, I think it's it's very light outside of whoever Kevin Anderson plays in the second round. So he's going to play Andahar Sitsipas. So between Andahar Sitsipas or Anderson, whoever gets through that, I think will end up making the final. Uh, and I'm going to go with uh, Karina Busta. Right. I think so. Those are pretty good, solid choices. I think it's going to come down to Karina Busta from the bottom half. And the top half, I'm going to just pick... Uh, Carbayas Bayana, uh, who you know played Nadal in I think Barcelona, I think he might have a chance mm-hmm. uh, of coming out the final. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I second your opinion. I think Karina Busta should be winning this week. He did put he did get a good he did put together a good effort against it all. Won a bunch of games. Yeah, if consolation points for ranking, he should get the maximum because he won eight games and he broke a few times. <laughs> and let's look at uh, the Munich draw and. Uh, Sasha Zverev looms large, uh, you know, playing at home. I think he won it last year. Uh, who's uh, who's who are the likely finalists here from top and bottom? Yeah, this is a really strong draw. Um, really, really strong um, for for a uh, for a two fifty. I'm going to go with uh, Chung on the top half. I think he's going to end up being an outstanding clay core player because of his. Uh, level of athleticism and the high level of defensive tennis that he plays a la Novak Djokovic. And then on the bottom half of the draw, I'm going to go with uh, Schwartzman. Really love him. He's about my height. So he's someone that I certainly look up to. Uh, and, I, and I'm always in awe of him when I see him play. So I'll go with uh, Chung and Schwartzman with uh, Chung winning. All right. Uh, I just, I think I'm going to differ a bit. I think, uh, 
Sasha's Zverev is going to get his revenge over Young Chung. Because I, but I totally believe I think Chung is going to be the breakout uh, player of this generation in clay. But I think Zverev uh, gets to the final where he'll play the mercurial Fabio Fonini and Zverev is going to defend his title. And we can take stock of this on Twitter next Monday. When, uh, <laughs> and last but not the least is uh, Istanbul. Uh, I can go first here if you... I think... Sure. Yeah, okay. Cilic is still in honeymoon mode, but can anyone stop him? Um, looking, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be tough. I think stopping Cilic, I think Cilic might, Cilic will be there to defend his uh, uh, title on Sunday, and he will play in the finals, I would say. Well, this is tough. Uh, I'm going to, he's going to play Bedene in the final and win the Istanbul Cup for second year in a row. Well, I'm definitely going to go with Cilic on the top half. I don't see anyone there who's going to challenge him though Paolo Lorenzi on clay could be a threat um, on the bottom half uh, it's interesting because you have Bedene, Bedene and Milman who just played today in the semifinals uh, or a match that finished today in the semifinals of Budapest so they both just had strong weeks um, Jumer is a good solid consistent player um, so I think I'm going to go with just on the sheer fact that Milman and Bedeni are probably tired. I'm going to go with uh, Chilich and Jumer and Chilich winning. Wow, so we have three tournaments and, you know, interesting picks by Nick and, you know, myself. Uh, thanks, Nick, for doing this. And we can, you know, uh, keep conversing on Twitter regarding how the weeks play out. And thanks, everyone, who's going to listen to this episode. Uh, we appreciate you tuning in. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. That was really fun. Hope to do it again soon. No, it was absolutely very informative. Thank you.